0: Welcome into the Hazard Ground podcast as always we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get started with this week's episode. I have some amazing news that you guys must know about. And if you guys are Amazon shoppers, this is for you. We have a great new way you can shop on Amazon and help out the podcast along with the veteran community. And it doesn't cost you a thing. Simply go to our website. HazardGround.com, and click on the Amazon banner on the homepage. You'll be taken directly to Amazon's website, and from there, shop away as you normally would. Best part about this, every month, we'll be donating a portion of the proceeds from Amazon sales through our website to one of the veterans' organizations we've featured on the podcast. So not only will you be helping out Hazard Ground, you'll also be helping out such great organizations as Mission Memorial Day, The Greatest Generations Foundation, Merging Vets and Players, The Shadow Warrior Foundation, The Pat Tillman Foundation, and 22Kill. So go to HazardGround.com. Click on that Amazon banner the next time you want to do Amazon shopping. Do your personal shopping, your office business shopping, supply, whatever it is. It's a simple, easy way to give back to veterans everywhere and be part of the Hazard Ground community. So we are excited about this partnership with Amazon and hope you guys will use our website going forward to shop on Amazon. Reminder, follow us on all the social media sites. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Leave us a review on iTunes. Those are so, so huge for us because those reviews help spread the word of this podcast, and we are growing, folks, and we can't do it without your help. So share the podcast with a friend, let somebody know about it, and tell all your friends what the Hazard Ground is doing. Now on to this week's episode. This week's guest went from a Navy SEAL to an entrepreneur. He was a guy who spent time in the Navy SEALs and then got in at the ground level of a startup performance drink company called Kill Cliff, where he is the chief sales officer. He is John Timar on the Hazard Ground podcast. John, welcome. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks, Mark. Glad to be here.
0: Okay, so you know we don't see a lot of entrepreneurs on the hazard ground. You know, it, it, there are a lot of people who do great things in their post military careers, but people who start like drink companies and and, and have businesses and things of that nature—that's something new for us. So I'm excited to hear about Kilcliff and everything that you guys have going on. You know, I'm a fan of the product, and certainly uh, I, I'm a believer in what you guys are doing over at Kilcliff. But we go back to the beginning. And you got your start in the Navy SEALs. When did you get into the Navy, and did you know you wanted to be a SEAL?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a great question. So um, I, I think it was for me that being a SEAL was something that, that kind of stems from my childhood. I, uh, I, w- when I grew up, my, my father, was a, he's a big like, movie buff, and, and we watched all the James Bond movies. And when I was in high school, I was, I was terrible about everything that, that I had to do academically. But I didn't like reading that much. I didn't have the attention span for it. But I did find the Richard Marcinko books and I read those. And back in those days we didn't have, you know, we didn't have YouTube and we didn't have the internet telling us all these crazy things about these cool jobs in the military, but we did have a few books. We had like two or three instead of like two hundred. And uh there they were there were a couple of them were the Richard Marcinko ones. So I read that and I and I read the uh and I uh I yeah, I watched the James Bond shows like with my dad and I was like, Wow, that's really cool. I'd like to do something like that. Um but it wasn't it wasn't a straightforward path. i I uh, had I graduated high school and I, I went to college and um, and I was three semesters in um, when, when my parents, who I, I grew up very fortunate and, and lucky, uh, they, they pulled the plug on my education until then they were, they were they were you know funding it. and I was kind of out on my own with nothing. And until then i I hadn't really pursued the path of becoming a seal, but I suddenly found myself with about four hundred dollars to my name. And living in a strange state in a different city, um, I couldn't you know, really pay rent. And, and I stuck it out for a while, though. I didn't go straight into the military. I, I, I got a job making $6.50 an hour at Lowe's, and I bought a bicycle with my money. And I actually literally rode my bicycle 10 miles to work every day and 10 miles back. And I worked in the garden center, and I was moving heavy things around. And I, I did that for a while. I was playing guitar in a band, and that was really cool um and uh and it dawned on me it was kind of a good a good a good process for me because i i kind of was on my own for the first time ever and i had to think about what, what was i going to do with my life and that's kind of when i made the decision after about six months of being on my own um that as much as i love being in this this band playing guitar great rock and roll music uh, which i'd been in for a while i'd been in while i was in college that wasn't going to cut it, and I really couldn't justify going back to school at that time because I didn't have any, any any, money or any direction. So I said, well, I'm going to do this thing that I thought I would do when I was a kid. So that's kind of how, how it
0: all started for me. What year was this? Because this is all pre-9-11, correct?
1: Yes, yes, all pre-9-11. It was uh, 95, uh, 94 going in 95. 94 is when I got the the, 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 nice, the nice notion from my folks saying, hey, look, we're pulling the plug, you're on your own do what you want and so I was like all right well I moved out of the house and and uh I went back to where I was in college which was at the time uh, North Carolina State University in Raleigh I grew up in the Atlanta area so I moved up there I hitched a ride up there with my sister and um and found some friends and got you know got into a little cheap rent and uh you know started getting after it so um so yeah that was 95 pre nine eleven. 11 it's kind of interesting because uh, when I as I was going through that process of, 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 of thinking about joining the military, um, there were lots of different influence and things that I, that I saw that kind of you know, pushed me that direction. I remember one of them, like, just watching some of the images from, from the stuff that occurred in Somalia playing on TV yeah, um, right around the time I thought that I was joining. And I, I think maybe that happens to some people. For me, it, it definitely sort of cemented my, my thinking that, you know, I needed to prove myself. I needed to do something. I had this dream from being a child. Um, and i I felt very you know i was very pro american so i was I was afraid to try something
0: it 's interesting because uh, you know a lot of guys who uh, you know, entered during that time I entered in a pre nine eleven era so i mean the the reasons were were various but it, it was there there wasn 't this overwhelming sense of patriotism um to do so because we were at a time of peace you know like the economy was great and Bill Clinton was president, and we had so many other things to focus on and you know, so uh, the the military, even at that time, you know, was starting to downsize, right? Like they they were actually looking to to get rid of people because we had this robust active force that we didn't really have a need. It,
1: you're right. It, it was actually a very tough time in the military, and maybe we can touch on that a little bit later on too, um, because that that impacted how I how I grew myself throughout the teams and after the teams. Um, but uh, but yeah, for me, it, joining the the SEAL teams, I mean. I didn't see the Charlie Sheen movie and thought I could be a little bit like him. <laughs> but um <laughs> but joining joining the Navy, um, and then uh going into the SEAL teams was, was, was more it was honestly more of a of a personal uh agenda and goal to to be to challenge myself in ways that I've never challenged myself and proved to myself after kinda of dropping out of college and I, I felt kinda of bad about that. I felt like I let my, my family down. You know, I, I felt bad because it seemed like all my friends had direction, and I didn't have any direction. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So it was just as much a personal thing as it was a, uh, you know, I, I my my grandfather was in World War II. I think he was a cook, so I don't think he saw any action. Um, and uh, I hear he was actually very good at getting fresh eggs to the troops. Which people love. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and uh, my my father was was uh, a six intruder bombardier navigator. So he he was a, actually I think he finally. Uh, got I think he finally resigned um, after about twelve years in. He was a lieutenant commander, um, and we our family had moved to Atlanta. But but he he was on the Nimitz other carriers, and you know he so he had so I was always I always had this patriotic calling. I think some people just feel that way. You grow up and you play GI Joe, and you want to be you know you want to serve, and I, I wanted to serve, uh, but there there was an absence, and it was clear when you were in the military at that time once you got in because your motivations could be very legit. Like when I got in, I was like all right, like, I hope there's a war because I want to be this. this <laughs> I'm going to go leader. save
0: America all by myself.
1: Exactly. That's how I felt. Like, so I had that, that sense of mission, but there was an absence of an overarching mission at that era. Right. And, you know, it, it was clear, played out in everything, it played out, played out politics, played out in the military. And, and it's exactly what you said. And I experienced that, you know, we, we all experienced that, uh, well, which was the downsizing and bases closing and, you know, it was uh, also very financially challenging for a lot of troops.
0: Now, when you when you signed up for the Navy, sometimes those guys have a lag in getting in to go try out for SEALs. Did you get in, go to Navy boot camp, and then get right to SEALs, or was there a lag time in between?
1: Oh yeah. So um, I when I was I was, you know, I, was I was pursuing my, my rock and roll career at the time, so the parallel path. But I did start talking. I think about two or three months out before I actually went to boot camp. I, I talked. I did flirt with the army a little bit just to see. I knew I wanted to try something special operations, um, but my heart was in the navy. My dad was in the navy, and, and I and I, I really thought the teams were incredible. And um, they, every, everything said is the hardest military training in the world. I, I feel that way, still, But I'm biased because I went through it. So yeah, I about I, I, I two or three months out before I. I, uh, I pulled the trigger. I was flirting around. I looked at the Army, but I, I, my heart was really set on the SEAL teams. I heard it was the hardest training in the world. That's what everyone said. I feel that way still. Um, I'm sure people argue with me, but it's really, really hard. And, um, and so I, I started looking into it and I, I decided, yeah, I'm going to go do this SEAL thing. That's what I was focused on. I was interested in it. So I, I think I signed up and actually signed my paperwork about about two months out from from actually shipping away, like going to the MEPS and then going to to boot camp. I went to boot camp in uh, uh, Great Lakes, Illinois. We call it great mistakes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's common Navy terminology. So it, what was really interesting in that process is, you know, everyone tells you when you say you want to be a sealer, like, all right, like the recruiter is like, yeah, all right. So you're not going to become one, but you can try to go. And what you need to do is you need to get a source rating school. You need to get a trade school set up because when you fail, you got to have a job because, you know, if not, you're going to be like literally, chipping paint on the side of a boat. And I'm like, Oh, that sucks. Um, but I'm going to make it. He's like, yeah, sure. Everyone's going to make it, but just trust me, get a job. I'm like, well, what jobs should I can get, which, should, which, should, which, should I do. And he's like, all right, well do this radio man thing. Because then when you get out, you can go make like, you know, 40 or $50,000 a year. And I'm like, all right, that sounds good. I'll do that. So, um, so I signed up and they had programs at the time called like dive fair and stuff like that. But I, I didn't sign up for that. Um, and the die Fair program, the only difference is they gave you a, they gave you a, a guaranteed shot to go to, uh, to go to, uh, SEAL training, but you had to, you had to pass all the tests. Um, but it was a six year commitment And at the time, you know, everyone's telling me that you're going to fail. So I'm like, all right, well, I don't think I'm going to fail, but who knows what's going to happen. So I'm going to sign up for the four year plan. So I didn't do die Fair. And, um, so I, I, yeah, I signed up and. It was really interesting though because when I got to boot camp, I literally had like like two maybe two chances to screen uh, the entire eight weeks of boot camp. And it's really important. And this is how it was during that era. It was really important at the time to pass the test, right? Uh, because in order to pass, you had to pass the test in order to get your your orders blocked. So basically, what would happen is if you passed the test, then you would go straight to your A school because that was already written into your contract, and then you go straight to bugs. If you didn't pass the test, then you had to go to fleet for two years before you had a chance to screen again. Whoa. So it was like there was yeah, there was a lot of a pr- lot of pressure and a lot of you had you had to do it. And it was kind of funny because I grew up as I'm a big guy, um, and I, I grew up as a I played linebacker in high school. I never run a mile in my life. That was like brutal, <laughs> just running a mile. Doing pull ups, forget about it. I could bench press anything, but doing pull ups. It's just not the way my my muscle composition is distributed. I'm just not. I'm, I wasn't good at it then, and I'm I'm still not good at. You you were you're gravitationally
0: so, challenged.
1: Uh, yes, I am. I am. So it was kind of funny because I, I remember at night in boot camp and we would go like all the guys that wanted to be that wanted to that wanted to be seals. We would go to the to the bathroom stalls and they where they had the little metal bars.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. just
1: above the door. they were real skinny, and we would do pull ups there. And the most I got to was seven. And back in that era, and I think they may have changed a few of the standards, but the test was you had to do, first, I think it was a 500-yard swim, and you had to do side stroke or breast stroke. And then you get out at a pool and you kind try to meander until everyone was done. And then you get in a big line and you dead hang pull-ups. None of this, like, CrossFit camping type stuff and, you know, right. these muscle-ups. This was, like, real deal, like, up on my count and down on my count. An instructor had their hand right in front of you or a broomstick in front of you, so you couldn't swing at all. And uh, and I remember I was I was a good swimmer growing up. I was on swim teams, so I wasn't worried about the swimming part. And in fact, I crushed everybody. I probably should have been a little bit more strategic, but I was like the third guy out of the pool. And that day that I screened, there was like there was probably about a hundred to one hundred and fifty people screening. And by the time we got through the, the screening test, there was there was like fifteen of us left. But I got through the swim. And we, it was, when, and then we basically get from the swim and get in the line for pull ups. And I kind of, I just kind of meandered. I was real strategic. I was like, oh man, like pull ups are coming up. I got to rest. Yeah, I, I just, was going like,
0: to say I you can get more rest out. if guys get in front of you, right?
1: Yeah. So I was, I was actually being kind of cagey, and I think I kind of the instructors didn't like that the uh, the dive motivator as we called them. And so uh, what happened is that when we finally got everybody out of the pool uh, and they formed a line, I managed to get towards the end of the line. And so I had time to rest. I was resting my arms the whole time. I got up there. and It was the very first time I did eight pulls in my life. I was feeling strong. I had a lot of adrenaline going. And I did. I got to, like, my uh, the seven count, and I hit it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, i got at least two, two more in me And then he called me up for the eight, and I barely got up, and I held it, and he said, down. I knew I was in there. He called me for nine. I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I got, like, halfway up. And, and I dropped He's like, get off the bar, son. And I, I said, and I was so excited because at that point, I knew I was gonna. I knew I had a shot. So, I um, I went and the push or the you know standard like PP test type is like push ups and and sit ups. That was simple. Uh, that was just like you know fifty and two minutes or something like that for each of them. And then uh, then it was the run. The run was the next hurdle for me. But you basically had it was basically set out to where the is eight minute pace, which I knew was doable. But I had to work hard even though I, I wasn't a runner. But we had to run with these with steel toe boots on and, and dungarees. So basically like blue jeans for people who don't know what those are. And uh, it was tough. I mean, I, I finished with like 15 seconds left, but then I knew at that point I was like, I got my orders blocked, I'm going to get a shot. So that's kind of how it happened for me. Um, but I knew going into SEAL training, there were some things I was really bad at, like pull-ups and running. Um, so I spent, I, I was lucky to have a couple months at A school to, to really work on that. There wasn't, like now I think there's a huge pipeline of, of, of programs in place to get people ready for SEAL training. It's like they get people hyper ready for it. It's kind of interesting. Sometimes I think I was like, would I have even been considered as a candidate? I mean, I was I was a good SEAL by all accounts. I mean, I worked my butt off. I did great things. I had great opportunities, and um, and I I got great friends to this day. And it, it, the SEAL teams have made me so much of what I am today. But like, would I I even had a shot in this current era to go through training? I wonder that sometimes because the things that I was bad at are things they want you to be good at,
0: and
1: mm-hmm. you know I, I I became good at them on the fly.
0: Right. All right. So you get to buds again for those civilians. Buds, basic underwater demolition school. Um, that that's your entrance into the Navy SEALs. Attrition rate is just insanely high. Uh, we've talked a lot with other SEALs about the bell. You know the bell there. If you wanna if you wanna drop on request, you ring the bell and you call it quits. So you got there. Uh, what were your impressions walking in? What were you thinking heading in? Did you have any preconceived notions?
1: Yeah, it was like Thunderdome, man. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have any preconceived notions. I did. I was training really hard before I got there. So I had a good group of guys in A school. That, well, you know, there's a bunch of guys that are going to be SEALs. Everyone's going to be a SEAL. Everyone's going to make it, right? So I had a bunch of guys. You know, you, 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 and you'll hear this if you talk to different guys from the teams. They're always finding people beforehand they bond with and they're like yeah we're gonna do it together. So I had that group and we had this cool little training program where we would we would run to the beach every day from we were in a school in uh, San Diego run to the beach like three miles and then we'd go for like a 500 yard swim and then we'd run back three miles. So I got really good at some of that stuff. But when I checked in the buds, it was like it literally like it was it, it was complete insanity. I was in pre-training and it was right around the holidays in '95 '96. Um, In fact, I didn't even go home on leave. My parents were trying to buy a ticket for me to come home for like Christmas. And I was like, I was so locked in mindset wise. I was like, I'm not going to go home and I'm not going to go get out of shape. I got a good plan here. You know, this is everything's riding on this because this is what I want to do. And so, uh, but yeah, checking in was really interesting though, because I, uh, (laughs) when I showed up at Buzz, you know, the first thing you do when you show up at Dane Military Command, I'm assuming some of this is still the same. Is you go from like like component to component across the base, and you have to, there's all administrative stuff you have to do, right? So we hand out our our paperwork, you know, to the to the finance people, or we go to the medical clinic and we get a bunch of shots and the immunizations. Um, and so there's there's a bunch of different places you need to go basically to end process. So the day I showed up and started in processing, they randomly there's like maybe maybe there's eight or ten people that showed up that day, and four of us just kind of were congregating together. It was me and John and Chris and John, so three Johns and a Chris. <laughs> and uh, and we just went we just went around the base like you know doing our thing. And it's kind of funny because a couple of things happened. Um, but, you know we, we went to medical and and we had to get like our, our blood drawn all that stuff. And, and this this I remember this, this gal was was really like digging in. I, my veins are not are, they're kind of embedded. You really can't see them well. And she was trying to get like some blood from me and digging around. I passed out. Next thing you know, I'm on like one of the decline benches with my head down low with the blood flowing to me. I'm oh like right when I right when I come through, there's a there's a retiring frogman master chief. He's got a big chaw in his mouth, because that's what we did back in those days. And he's got a big old nasty mustache, and he's like an inch from my face, stinky breath, and he's like, he said something to the effect of Son, you're never gonna be a frogman. And he's kind of laughing, and he's like spitting all over me as he's talking. I'm like, oh God. So um, <laughs> so that happened. And <laughs> then and then we're, we're going through the chow hall line later on, and we're in our dress whites because that's you checked in in right here in your best uniform. And we're going through the chow line. I guess the cocktail medications they put inside me, something went wrong, and I passed out in the chow hall line. So twice my first day there, I passed out. Not a good and sign, I like, John. I, yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> and it was and, oh, the worst thing about it is it was like it was like lasagna and spaghetti, so that was all over me too.
0: Oh, God. So I'm like,
1: this is, this is starting off real good for me, guys. This is going to be great um so what's really interesting is those those four guys uh that we checked in together and we're all like you know me and this other this one john we're, we're chatting it up and, and we're, we're kind of sizing everyone sizing each other up it's kind of like if you showed up to like football camp or wrestling camp or some athletic camp for the first day with a bunch of people you don't know you're sizing each other up and everyone there is by all means i mean they passed the screening test a lot of people there were a lot of people in my class in particular that had had some level of collegiate athletics that had either dropped out or uh, maybe they finished and We're looking for something new to do. So, um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm talking, you know, I like to talk and I'm talking trash. And so I told John, I'm like, Hey John, you know, that guy up there, there was a guy who's clearly there in age waivers and he was like 30 years old and he was one of the other jobs. And he was like, he was like real small and skinny and he had this big old fat greasy face. I call him the grease man. And that he still has that nickname to this day. Um, so the grease man, he, uh, I was, I was telling my, my friend John, I was like, that guy is so skinny and small. There's no way he's going to make it through. And it's kind of funny. Fast forward fast forward six months, the four of us that checked in were four of the eight originals that graduated with that class. So we only had eight people out of 130 that graduated straight through. There were probably another, I don't know, eight to ten that rolled out and graduated elsewhere. But for us, our direct attrition rate for going straight through was about 94%. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so that's for me checking in. I had a, it kind of was, a you know, it was like Thunderdome and I passed out twice and, um, and you know, I, I sized up the guy who wasn't going to make it and he made it with me. It was kind of interesting. Uh, you know, first day on the job.
0: What was the hardest part about buds for you?
1: Oh man. I mean, Bud, it's so hard to answer that question because there's a part of you, the people, I think the people who make it true at some, at some level, they, they, they find enjoyment in it. Right. Uh-huh. Um, they I love I, the pain I found out to be, yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. I don't know. It was, it, to some people, it's, it's a bit, to me, it was a big adventure. Um, I was terrible at a lot of things, though, when I started. Like, I mean, I was just the minimum qualification standard. So I think early on for me, like, where I had challenges, I didn't really have challenges in the water. Um, there were some evolutions that were really tough. Like, I didn't really fail anything going through the budget, which is credible for how I describe myself. But I did. There, there, there were two things that I, I really had a hard time with. Um, you could read about these things and the see them in documentary, So it's not like I'm giving away any, any crown jewels or secrets here. Um, one of them was underwater knot tying. The first time I did it, I just didn't have. It's like a strategy, and it's, a, it's a, it, there's a certain way you do it. And this was in pre-training, so unfortunately I didn't fail when we did it for real on first phase. But but we were up in the thing. We used to have this huge dive tower, and it was just it, I mean, going in there was really really cool. And I remember the first time I was down there trying to tie knots. And I just bolted to the surface. I lost my breath, and it was terrible. And the instructors were yelling at me, and it was crazy. So that was hard for me. And then later on, there's this evolution and dive phase where you're treading water with a, a, some real heavy tanks on you. And that's all technique, and I didn't understand at the time. Once I learned the technique, I passed it the second time. But I think going through BUDS for me, the, the, real, the hard thing was really the running part. Um, and it wasn't really like – I mean, that's just on a physical level. It was – for me, it was – I just – I had to get better, and I had to get better. And at the beginning of training, I was terrible at it relative to my peers. So I was in something called the Goon Squad. And the Goon Squad, another thing you can read about, is they're the guys that are bad at running. You're like in the back of the pack. And so they, they, they pull up next to you in like an ambulance, like a big van. It was like an eighteen van, you know? Right. Um, and uh, and they, they're on their their, their uh, megaphones going <clears> – <throat> and telling you all sorts of great things like get back in the trunk you need to quit now and so it's kind of like that sort of cadence of just like trying to talk you down and um and what they do is they start to they start to to, to wrangle all the people there are slow and they give you extra benefits you do all sorts of extra calisthenics you do all sorts of extra wind sprints you're 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 running with guys on your shoulders and they're just beating you down so um, so that was, so. I just stuck it through. I remember I had like a this one senior chief who was trained. Uh, he was so frustrated by my slowness early on that he pulled me aside and just yelled in my face. He's like, why don't you just quit right now? You just suck. You're terrible. I'm like, I'm not going to quit. I wouldn't tell him that because that would just give me extra benefits. But, um, but yeah, so I mean, that was, that was really the hardest thing for me for me physically through training. But at the end of the day, like, People make it because they're mentally tough, right? Well, that's and what that, I was going to ask that, you.
0: I mean, you, you seem to indicate that you struggled with a lot of the basic tactical stuff that they wanted you to do, and yet that didn't get you kicked out, and clearly you didn't drop. So from that standpoint, I, w- I was going to ask you about the what was the redeeming quality that, that led the the SEALs to keep you?
1: Well, I didn't fail anything. I mean, I was just, uh, I just wasn't as, I mean, they, they wanted me, they were on me because they wanted me to be faster. They wanted me to be better, right? They wanted to build me. They break me down and build me up, and they do that to everybody. So there wasn't—I was—I never—I never was at a point where it's like you know this guy. He, if you were failing evolutions, and they will drop you if if they think that you're if they think that you have a lot of good like raw material they like can mold. They may elect based upon your performance, your and personality, and your what you what you could bring to the, the Navy. They may to the teams. They may like roll you and give you a second chance. That wasn't my case. I was just you know I'm just telling you the things I wasn't great at. But I was good enough to pass the minimum standards, right? Um, and but I just I just got better and better and better. But at the end of the day, you know, filtering is about mental toughness, and and that's what you know. I, I just remember for me, and everyone has a different experience in this capacity. But like for me, watching people quit because there are people I came in and I sized up, and I'm like, wow. I guy played linebacker in college. I'm so glad he's on my log PT team because he's strong as an ox, and that's a true story. Um, but, like, like, you know, this guy is, like, an amazing triathlete. Um, and, and you see him, and they outperform you in certain things that you're struggling at. And, and to me, it was like when they quit, I was like, wow. Like, I'm really getting stronger every day. Um, you know, I'm really exploring myself here. I'm, I'm testing my personal challenge, my personal limits um, of what I thought I could do. And I'm, I'm surpassing them, and I'm getting faster. I'm getting stronger. And I was emboldened. I mean, I felt bad. I had a lot of friends that quit, and I, I, I didn't really want them to quit. But when they did, every time they quit, it just made me stronger. It just, it just, it just reaffirmed to me that that I had a purpose here, and that I could do this. I remember one time this guy named Wyatt. He, he was just, uh, he was just an incredible athlete, and he smoked everybody on the swims and the runs. And we were doing this thing called rock portage. And rock forage is is kind of a, you know, from the outside looking in, it might not look that bad, but it's terrible. I mean, it's, and I don't mean that in like, 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 it's just, it's a very, it's a dangerous exercise, right? So you, you're basically taking these, these, these rubber boats, we call IBSs, and you're, you're rolling them in to these rocks. And your challenge as a boat crew, it's a a great, it's a great exercise in, in teamwork and leadership. Your challenge as a boat crew is to get out of the boat and lift the boat out of the water, and get the water, get the boat over the rocks to the other other side of the, the rocks on the beach. And it's like kind of like a jetty, um, and uh, it, it's really you do it at night. And I mean, it, it's 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 kind of interesting because the waves get pretty big out there, and they're they're lifting the boat up. and just smashing the boat into the rocks as you're trying to operate as a unit, getting out of the boat up, you know, lifting up the boat, getting the boat over the rocks. And we have all you know calls and cadence that we use to try to do it in a coordinated fashion. And I remember when we were about to start doing it, it was a pretty nasty night. When I went through Buds, it was El Nino season, so the weather was all off the whole time I was through Buds. And there was all sorts of crazy weather and big waves and all sorts of stuff. And so uh, this guy, Wyatt, who, I mean, he, he's one of the guys who signs up and say this guy's going to be the man, he's going to make it through, he's going to be like Super Seal. Uh, didn't happen. I watched that guy make a D-line right before the evolution started. He was so scared. He broke mentally, and you saw this. I mean, you see it over and over again. There's this one time where they they do simple things to you. Like, they put us in the San Diego Bay. This is probably, like, the third or fourth week of training. Middle of the day. And we're out there. It's probably probably about 60 degrees, maybe 58, 60 degrees. It's pretty cold. And um, they have a whole line of people. We probably still have, like, 70 or 80 people left in our class. Interlock arms. And we, like, we basically – we went – we were probably about, like, uh, maybe – we were on our knees interlocking arms, so we were probably – Generally speaking, average person about mid waist to chest level death. Right. And when the instructors hit the bullhorn, the only thing we had to do was put our head underwater for like a three or four second count and then bring our head up. And we did it for like an hour. And it got to the point where people started quitting because they didn't want to put their head back in the water.
0: Wow. It was just brutal.
1: And you can't imagine that till you're in it. But when you're in it, there's people that like, they they won't put their head back in. It happened again. It actually happened after seal training in my class we were doing this thing uh called hydro reconnaissance and we we're doing it in the night and i mean i said seal training. i meant i meant hell week after hell week for my class we we were doing this thing called hydro reconnaissance and we were out in the water And it was a nasty night it was super cold and um and the uh uh the, the waves were crashing we we're freezing the instructors were out trying to do this reconnaissance in the water and they could call us in and they're beating us down and we're, we're wearing like a half-wetsuit, and they think, how us take it off and get back in the water and do it again? So we're wearing our, our little UDT shorts and a, and a T-shirt, and they bring us back in, they're yelling at us, making us do calisthenics. So basically, a, a standard thing in field training is we get you down to your body temperature really near hypothermia, and then we build you back up right through exercises, and we put you back down. So it's a constant thing. And why you're doing that constant thing is breaking you mentally. Um, and uh, I remember it, 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 this this time where... You know, um we were uh we, we were brought back in there and they told us to take off all of our clothes. And when they told us to do that and get back in naked, just that idea that there was just a little bit of clothes on you to keep you warm, even though it really wouldn't really. Um, and the the the, the idea that you're gonna have to keep doing this, even with no clothes on in the cold water, middle of the night, people quit. They quit right there. And a few of us we there weren't that many of us less in class that time. We ran and jumped in the water and we're yelling out hoo-yah, getting excited about it, like say they're trying to overcome the adversity. And, and we just saw like three or four people just quit right there. They wouldn't get back in the water. And within like a minute of being in the water, it canceled the evolution for the night. So those guys, if they'd just done it for another 60 seconds, they would have been good.
0: That's unreal. So, I mean, that, like it just the fear of the unknown sometimes really just overcomes a lot of people. Um, and, and it's what separates, you know, guys who do the seals and, and people who don't, um, that doesn't make them bad soldiers or bad sailors or whatever. Uh, it's just you know, the, there's only uh, there's a reason why the attrition rate is that high. It's, it's only meant for certain people.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, it's, it is. it's it's a it's a and that's the thing. There's a saying in the SEAL teams, it's true. It's the only easy day. It was yesterday. Is yesterday. yeah, right. And so, like, it, it, you you can't imagine it till you're in it. But when you go to a a SEAL team, the things you do and the, the things they're asking you will be harder and will be in worse conditions. You'll be colder. You'll be wetter. You'll be more tired. Um, than anything you did in BUDS, And that's just that's just the truth. That's what it is. It's a hardcore environment. and when you get there, um, every, everything you did in training, there's a reason you did it because people are going to depend upon you in really challenging situations. And you, I mean it's, it's a high risk job. You're putting yourself in a lot of like like physical exposure um, in a lot of things you do. and you have to have um, you have to have attention to detail. you have to have mental toughness. Because those two things are going to keep you safe and are going to keep you operational as part of the unit as you go into these really much harder things that you do when you're SEAL.
0: So, was Passing so, Buds the, the, the proudest day of your life?
1: Yeah, probably. Probably one of them. I mean, it was up there with, like, you know, having a kid. It's right. Like, I mean, it's, it's just like, it was one of these things. Like, everybody told me I couldn't do it. My friends from back home, the recruiter, um, even the <laughs> instructors in phase one. And, and then, you know, like, and even my, my, like when I called my parents after I got through hell League, like they were like shocked, like they didn't even think I could do it. So like, it was one of those things, like for me, it was a super empowering experience in so many ways. And, and it was, it was an amazing, I mean, it's one of those things for me was just like the biggest adventure of my life. And, um, and you know, it was, it, I, I have, I have nothing bad to say about it. It was just, it was a test every single day. I got better at things every single day. Um, and at the end of the, at the end of the experience, um, I was there with, uh, eight other guys or seven other guys that started with me six months before, um, you know, basically graduating and getting our orders to the next place.
0: That's inspiring stuff, man. So, um, you know, we talked about you doing this during peacetime, so a brief overview. And if you want to talk about a specific, you know, mission or anything that you went on, but you know, in your time there. Obviously the operational tempo wasn't very high because we weren't at war. We there's still bad guys around the world, but you know, kind of give me the overview of what you did once you got to the teams.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, so I went to seal teammate. Um, I had orders there out of buds and back in that day, we didn't, they, a lot of this training is internal now, but back in that day we'd go to different schools and stuff outside of the Navy as part of our pipeline. And I went, um, I, I actually I, I finished BUDS and I went to Fort Benning, Georgia for a few weeks uh, to get my my jump wings at the Basic Airborne School, and then I checked in the SEAL the Team Eight. How easy was um, Airborne School did, compared
0: to BUDS? <laughs> it
1: was really. Look, I mean, great respect for people that are Airborne Paratroopers, but you know, coming from BUDS, it was kind of it was it was it was a cakewalk. Yeah, that's I'm what I kind of like figured. <laughs> yeah, we got in a lot of trouble there. They did they, they did not like us. It. It's probably a good thing that they. They moved it into an in-house Navy school because we just we came in, we were super arrogant. We were not we were not cool to the instructors. Um, we uh, we didn't do anything the army asked us to do, and we were just like discipline problems for them. So
0: yeah, that that, uh, air, that was, airborne was, shuffle didn't push you like they did in buds.
1: <laughs> no, no, I but I do remember like you know they they used to do that. They probably still do that run down the hill to the hangar. Yeah, and the purpose of that run when you're doing the five jumps is to make sure that you're not like you don't have an injury you're trying to conceal. And if you do, then you got to do, like, the school again um, or at least stick around and do the five jump. My first jump, man, I, I twisted my ankle so bad when I landed. It was black and blue. And I pumped so much Advil. It took so much willpower running down that hill. I was not going to have a limp at all because I, I was not going to stay there. Um, so I did I did have a little snafu. But anyway, uh, yeah, so I, I went from uh, Fort Benning, and I checked in a SEAL Team 8. It's kind of funny because I checked in at SEAL Team 8, and, you know, my first day, I'm, like, I'm, I'm wetter and colder than any time I was in Buds. I, my first day as a new meet checking in, I had to get support a uh, platoon that was about to go out the door and exercise in the middle of Chesapeake in the middle of the wintertime. time. Wow! Um, and it was it was freezing, and they were doing some stuff like out, outside of helicopters out in the open water, and and I was in the support unit, and you know in a, in a rib out there, and it was it was pretty it was pretty gnarly that night. Um, but uh, it's kind of funny because one of the things that happened when I checked in, it was we were all waiting to go to advanced training, and so you get you know sequestered off to different jobs. And I happened to be there the day that we got the call. The call was, do you have anybody at Silky Mate that can box? Because the British Royal Army has a boxing team, and they're traveling the world and doing smokers events for, for morale and recreation, and they want to do one at the Little Creek Base. And, of course, I had this old salty master chief who's like, yeah, I got a bunch of new guys right now that are perfect to be boxers. So that's how I started out my SEAL Team a, with a punch in the face. It was awesome. Um, literally. <laughs> so here's here's a story. So literally this guy, like the British Royal Army, is looking to line up fights, and they call the base commander for the base that we're at. And uh, and he's like, hey, you know, do you guys have anyone who can box? We want to do a smoker's event. And base commander's like, yeah, I got SEALs on my base. I got Marines on my base. I got CBs on my base. I got EOD on my base. Absolutely. We're going to do an event here. So then the base commander calls up all the – this is the story, at least. He calls up all the different commands, and the commands are like, heck no, I'm not putting my guys out there in front of, like, basically professional boxers that are on a, a British team, cruising the world and beating people up. And when they called SEAL Team mate <laughs> the command master chief is like, I used to train boxers. Yeah, we're going to do this thing. I just got eight new guys. Let's do this thing. And uh, and so I spent my first two months at SEAL Team mate like two and a half months, like, boxing every morning, which is kind of interesting because I was in – by all means, like peak condition of my life and doing the boxing workout for two and a half hours every morning. Oh yeah. was I, That was a burner. I mean, that yep. was a gut check. Yeah. So we went in a couple of months later and fought the British army and it was a bloodbath. I one of two people to win. Wow. I mean, I you just, got the trophy to this day.
0: I, I, I'd be proud of that. That's survival of the fittest right there. That's Darwinism at his finest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's a long story, but that's, that's what happened. So, so yeah, CLT-8 was really cool. I, I checked in there and and I got a, you know, I, I, I immediately went through advanced training and gotten a, a platoon that was operational and there wasn't much going on in that era. I mean, we were really focused on on things like uh, you know, like stabilization in the Balkans. Um, you know, there's a whole Kosovo thing that kind of came on towards right, the end of my, yeah. my time in the, in the Navy. Uh there was stuff going on still in like the in the Middle East. There's a lot of counter proliferation missions. Uh at that there was some counter narco stuff, but at that time, you know. The, the the likelihood of seeing action as a CEO was 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 slim i mean you, it was basically a, a like almost like had like dumb luck you had to be in the right place at the right time sure, it wasn't like yeah. we're in this combat environment and there were people who did i mean there were things that happened like you know there was there was haiti and panama and there were guys who saw some action and in, in those in those events and there's there were some things that happened you know the guys over at dev group clearly were doing much cooler stuff than us at the time um but uh but there wasn't really like that much i was I remember being being overseas, and you know, I, that's when the the embassy bombings happened and all that stuff. And and we got, I mean, we got called away to do some like stabilization in Albania, and, and that was kind of cool. But it wasn't like, I mean, it wasn't. It was just, it wasn't like anything.
0: Yeah, it was, well, it's not like anything I mean, that we it's know now. Even,
1: yeah, it's, it, it just wasn't like that. Um, it was. We just like kind of showed up, and we were, they were worried that you know there were there were some potential threats in the environment, and we just did patrols, and and I mean. Like you know, we, we spent a little bit of time. We got to do a little round robin of of work. It's like back in that day, basically when you went overseas in SEAL, um, you you would do a lot of training with other military forces, and you 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 you'd work out, you go skydiving as much as possible. We love skydiving, so you go do a lot of skydiving, and you do a lot of exercises. The one thing that was kind of cool, and this is this might be cheesy to guys that are like like combat vets to do all sorts of cool stuff, but it was cool for me. Um, <laughs> When I when the whole embassy bombings happened and they that we were over doing some training in the Gibraltar area, like it was it was kinda like a movie because they needed us to deploy and they needed us to go somewhere to provide security. And um, and like we had to coordinate all our assets because we were working on exercise. We were all out having a good time at the bars and partying all over Gibraltar and it's kinda like these MPs, these British MPs like cruised all over the, the rock there. And they uh, they were picking us up. And it was like, wow, something cool is going on. This is like the real deal. This is what we've been training for. You know, it's like the moment in Top Gun. Um, so, so it's like, so they, they go around the mountain. They're picking us up. And, and, and then they bring us back. And, you know, we, we get all of our stuff together um, throughout the morning and the next day. And then that night, uh, we had to fly out of there. And it was kind of interesting because they had this little airstrip there in Gibraltar. There was no one there. There were no lights on. The C-130 sets down in the middle of the night. We all pop in the back of it and fly off. Actually, you know we're in Albania, so that was pretty cool. I mean, it's just like a cool scene, but uh, but for me, it was like you know, it's like when I was in, I you know, you, you train for these elite operations, you did all this cool stuff, and the the reality when I went overseas is, you, we put we put ourselves in some environments that were interesting. It wasn't a combat environment, um, so honestly, it was kind of a little bit of a letdown. I mean, just from my perspective, and I don't mean any disrespecting that. I just I the whole life I've been reading Marcinko books, and I've been like. You know, I'd been, uh, you know, like watching James Bond movies. And then kind of when I got there, I was like, oh, well, you know, the likelihood of me like actually doing anything really cool is really low right now. Um, So that kind of, that was a little bit of a bummer.
0: So Uh, you. And
1: that kind of influenced, I guess, the rest of my direction.
0: So you decide that you're, you're going to get out. um, And and obviously, as you said, after. You know, having a, for lack of a better term, a lackluster kind of time in the SEALs where the, the combat stuff wasn't there. You decide to get out uh, in 1999. How hard was that decision for you?
1: Oh, it was really tough. And I think it's probably really tough for people today. I think the what, what I've heard there's, is that the average, and I don't know if it's right, the average 10 years, right around six years, you know, like, a, like doing a couple of platoons and people get out. Um, I think that's probably the case. I don't know if that's true, if we've gotten people in for a longer period of time, given the... The, you know the combat environment that we're in um but yeah it was really tough back then because we, they, to get to where you are to be part of that that community and to be a, a, a contributing factor you know you're contributing you're participating you're you're part of the deal and you're the show and people depend upon you right like when you decide that you're going to go a different route that leaves a gap there you know and it's not like you can just you, you can quickly fill that gap um, so there's a there's an element of when you decide that you want to leave. As a younger guy without, you know, where you're maybe four, six, eight years in, there's it's unavoidable, I think, that you feel like at some extent you're like, you know, you're turning your back on your peers and walking away because it is a tight knit community and there's a high expectation for you. Um and it's not something and it also costs a lot of money for Uncle Sam to make you a SEAL. Um and there aren't many of them and they can't see they can't get, you know. It, the, the ratio of people who graduates never, never really changes. So, you know, it's hard to, to, to replenish the community. And um, so it was a hard decision for me, um, you know, and, and I, I looked at it when I, when I joined the Navy, I, I felt pretty, you know, for me, I I kind of came in with two goals. I was like, I'm going to be a SEAL and I'm going to get money for college and go back to college. Cause that's something that I felt really bad about like, like leaving college. And I kind of had this commitment to myself, in absence of a larger mission, like a war, um, then I'm going to do the school thing, and so that's that's kind of where I ended up when I was when I was making the decision. It was kind of interesting because I did really well, and I I had some I had really high evals. I got a lot of great schools. You know, um, you know back then you had to like there are certain schools you kind of had to work for like Free Fall School now they just give it to you um, uh, like Comm School you know all these things and they were trying to keep me in. They offered me like a tax free reenlistment bonus, fly me over to Bosnia to re-enlist, and they offered me Sniper School. Um, and, and some other cool things like Free Fall jump master, stuff I wanted to do. Um, but I kind of weighed that with, like, you know, like the option of doing that. And when I looked around, and I think this is this is a, a message I'd like to get out there, is that, you know, back then in a non-war time environment, families were struggling. It was hard for people. It's hard. If you're a SEAL, you're even in peacetime, you're gone all the time. It's really fun. You train all over the country. You train all over the world. You do all sorts of cool stuff everywhere. Um, I mean, how can you not, like, you know, blowing things up and shooting guns and jumping out of airplanes and doing all that great stuff, right? Um, but you, your families are kind of left behind a little bit, and it's hard. And back in the Clinton era, we brought up earlier, you had you know families that they were struggling, too, financially. So I, I looked at it and then I had people that were training me. I had some guys that were in the tail end of Vietnam who saw some action they were training, but I also had people that, that 15, 20 years in the Navy, done a lot of cool stuff but never saw any action at all. So I'm looking at that saying, wow, we're in, like, Pax Americana. There's no action going on. I got this goal that I set for myself in absence of like a greater mission, I'm going to go accomplish. And I got, I got all these these points of reinforcement. And maybe it's what I was looking for. I don't know in retrospect, but it's what I saw. Like, you know, the best officers, the ones that I really like, they were getting out and going to get an MBAs and killing it at Wall Street. And you saw it happening. In fact, some of those guys are the ones who are the early, you know, early supporters for Navy SEAL Foundation, which is this amazing charity we have today. Uh, the, the, the more experienced guys I was deploying with, they were all talking about their exit strategies. You know, they're like, one of the guys that put me through uh, ace or uh, advanced training, like he 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 got out like during advanced training, he was put me through land warfare. And I remember vividly like I was coming back from doing some land warfare maneuvering and I'm cruising into the the the, the gates of the base and uh this uh this guy's like on his dirt bike leaving, he's so happy he's popping wheelies on the way out and that's the guy who's training me. I'm like, What message is this sending me right now? So um so, yeah, I, I, I looked at it, and I, for me, it was like when I looked at it, I had this goal. There wasn't any combat. People hadn't seen much action. So I wondered, like, do I just want this to be Groundhog Day for me or do I want to take what I learned in the SEAL teams and begin to, like, continue to improve myself in different ways and different places uh, as I go through life? And so it was a hard decision to make. Uh, I felt, you know, I think it's hard for people today. If you're if you're only in for, like, you know, four, six, eight years and you're thinking about it, you feel like you're deserting your teammates. If you're in for 20 30 years and you think about getting out you're scared i mean people literally are scared and they just it's the unknown it's, you're going from all the stability that you had in the navy and then you're leaving that stability so it's its a hard decision um for me the decision at the end of the day was when i thought about where i wanted to be you know five ten years down the road um it wasn't i didn't want to be in a, a situation where i was uh, you know, where I was, I had a family that was struggling and, um, and I had these other goals I wanted to accomplish. And I kind of was, I was a young guy, you know, and when you're young life, you know, time periods seem a lot longer. And so to me, I thought that if I gave up this opportunity to go back to school now, I might not be able to do it. Right. And, you know, that may have been a false decision, you know, in this day and age, there's a lot of information out there. Um, you know, there were, for me, there were no examples of guys who did like 10, 12 years in the teams and they became successful entrepreneurs and, and killed it and did all straight great stuff. I couldn't see that on YouTube. I couldn't see it on the Internet. That stuff just didn't exist. My world was actually very small. And so when it came down to making a decision, I listened to the people around me and I listened to my gut and I said, you know, as much as I want to do these cool things in the Navy, I don't know that doing those cool things over the long haul is going to get me where I want to be uh, with what I'm doing. So that's why I made the decision.
0: Okay. So you go back to school, uh, you finish up, you get your degree. How do we get to being chief sales officer at Killcliffe?
1: Uh, great. That's great. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, for me, it was, it, it, it kind of, uh, I, 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 you know, I went to school and I ended up initially when I got out in the big company and it just wasn't there. You know, one of the things that I didn't really fully appreciate until I got older is how much I, I love being a SEAL. And maybe as you get older, you remember the good and forget the bad. Um, I've heard that before, I think it might be true. But I did love it, and there's never been a job that's really fulfilled me in so many different ways as being a seal did. Uh, so I kind of and, I, and maybe some other guys self-select to this for me, I kind of ended up like being more attracted to riskier jobs and entrepreneurial type stuff. So I, I you know I got out and I, I went to school and then I, I, I you know I actually had a hard time. It was kind of interesting because when i when I got out, I thought like, well, I'm a seal, you know, I should be CEO tomorrow. I think you know, a lot of guys think that I certainly thought it. And the reality was, was much different. I mean, I, I honestly, when I got out, like people didn't know what a seal was generally speaking. Like some people did people are military boss or had, you know, family in the military or just paid attention, you know, or saw the Charlie Sheen movie. They knew the seal thing was kind of special. But I remember when I got out talking to people, it was either like, you know, Hey, yeah, man, I was a seal. And they were like, wow, really? What's that? Or you'd be like, really? You? You don't look like what I envision SEAL, you know? You don't look like you know, Dolph Lundgren, or you don't look like uh, you know, whatever they envisioned. I just, you know, didn't fit that mold in their mind, so so it was kind of interesting, because it initially it didn't get me anywhere. It actually, I was kind of like that was a little bit deflating, and it's probably a good thing, because it, it forced me it kind of like, just like Bud's kind of tore me down and rebuilt me getting out of the Navy, kind of tore me down a little bit and rebuilt me, and you know, I had to start to think differently. Um, and, uh, and it was a long, it was a long path for me. It wasn't easy. I actually, when I left the job that I first got with a big company, I couldn't get a job after that. Like I couldn't, I, it was, I couldn't even get a job. I mean, I was like applying to jobs everywhere. I couldn't get a call back. I had to do temporary work. I had to, I had to drive trucks. I mean, I had to really like, like, it was almost like, like started from scratch. Um, I was broke all the time. It was terrible. So, um, so yeah, so I started taking, like when I finally did get my break uh it was it was from others in the seal community right so i was at university of chicago at the time i had a scholarship there to study um international policy um and economics and it was pretty cool i, I had that opportunity for grad school and i took it and um and i was looking for opportunities in fact at the time todd Ehrlich and i had reconnected from we were both seal to make guys and he had this really cool thing that he had uh, that he had set up but it was it was very speculative at the time so i kind of passed on it and then uh uh, cause I was, I was about to get married and I was like, you know, I need something. So there's a couple of seals who were, they were, they had this, they were part of this British private security company and they hired me. Um, that's kind of like, it, it was like, went from being like an intern to like a full-time contractor. So I was like going to grad school and working full time. And it was really cool. It was helping them build their, you know, their, their business around all these projects in Iraq and in other crazy countries in the world. And we ended up, well, this is where I got my real bug for entrepreneurial stuff. Um, or at least it, it you know, I, that was the first time it really resonated with me. I always had that entrepreneurial part to me, but, um, we, uh, uh, we, we inadvertently found out that we had these, all these contracts we were winning with big construction companies. You know, they, we found out they were U S government, they were like U S government contracts and we're in this British security company. I'm like, Oh man, we gotta do things differently. So we incorporate and we create a subsidiary and over a 20 month period, we grew that baby to $40 million. Wow. Just a small, a small group of us. We had it was crazy. We had 500 people working for us across the globe. And it was this was like pre Fallujah. You know, Fallujah changed everything. The, the incident with the security contractors. Um, before then, it was it was the security environment was not very bad in Iraq, and people drove around soft skinned vehicles, basically like regular cars everywhere. After that, it was crazy because everything went you know it went hard skin immediately. So there was like there were there were not enough armored cars in the world to send to Iraq. Like we would literally we were it was the craziest job in the world. We were buying cars from Colombia, armored armored SUVs from Colombia, and sending them to Iraq for our people. Holy, uh, which was it was insane experience, right? So, uh, but what really got me is all of a sudden like I I kind of felt like it was the first time since I got out and I went through school and I'd been through the beatdown. I couldn't get a job, you know. I was working really hard bootstrapping it this opportunity was the first thing that really opened my eyes again. I was like, man, I love what I'm doing. I love the element of building something and creating something. I love the element of risk that's involved in it. And maybe this is kind of what I've been searching for the whole time. I honestly didn't care what industry it was in. I love that we built the subsidiary. We turned it into like a $40 million profit center for this company. And uh, we were doing cool stuff all over the globe. We had like recruiting depots in Fiji and Salvador. And we stood this thing up from nothing um, in just a matter of, of you know months. Uh, so that's where I got my bug. I, I left that company though because I had another opportunity. Um, there was a, a different startup. that was back and I was in LA at the time, and I moved back to DC for this opportunity with a really cool company that was at the time they were doing they were advising hedge funds. So it was still in this sort of international security and risk environment, and we we advised hedge funds on on like disruptions of, in Nigeria, like oil disruptions and what that means for you know the markets, and we advised them on stuff like uh, like you know if, if whether or not Brazil would invest in offshore oil exploration so the idea is we were looking at political and social factors and really uh, you know volatile countries in the world and trying to make predictive analytics to hedge funds like this is why you would you know this is this is what's going to happen in the next two three four months and then the hedge funds would make their bets based upon that analysis and this was really cool because when I got into this job I all of a sudden had this like I had this international collection network. I had literally we had like 500 people in 65 countries they were all like local nationals educated grew up in those countries we had a team of analysts inside our inside our company that were running those uh those teams and we were collecting intel and we were people were buying our intel and it was kind of right at the forefront of that, that private intel world and it was a, at a much higher analytic rigor than some of the other stuff that kind of emerged as like you know basically slightly better news ours was really cool and as a result all of a sudden, I find myself from being an enlisted SEAL, having no job, couldn't get a job, people not know what I do. Next thing you know, I'm advising the National Intelligence Council. I'm like, wow, this is kind of cool.
0: And wow. I'm advising the,
1: the National Security Council. So I had, we were advising the counterterrorism wing on the National Security Council. We were advising the you know, the National Intelligence Council to do these sort of like – they do these big programmatic like, you know, like let's look at the trends in the world and look out five years and say this is what's happening. Next thing you know, they're my customers. So – I'm, you know, I'm, I'm part of that process. And I, that was really cool. And I'm doing it with, I'm doing it with a bunch of foreign nationals. I'm doing it with people all over the world. I'm, I'm being, I'm collecting Intel and I'm getting it back to people, you know, as alternative information sources, as they make their decisions on, you know, the uh, risks and opportunities in different parts of the globe. But that was also a startup. The guy who started his name was Ian Bremmer, The company's called Eurasia Group. It's really cool. And uh, he bootstrapped that with 25,000. So when I came on, I was like responsible for wanting, running one of his three businesses. So I got a little bug there. So that's kind of how I ended up in entrepreneurial stuff. And then I made a, I made a, a jump in my career and I guess I'll kind of fast forward to get to kill close. But so I made a jump and I got, I, I, I've been providing, I've been in like the service economy, providing services to big corporations as a consultant and an advisor. And that was cool. But what I was really interested in was like, like I started getting really interested in business problems in the entrepreneurial environment. And, Unlike, you know, some people who are like they, they create stuff from the ground and they, they build it. I haven't really got there yet in my career. That's definitely the next thing for me. But I kind of ended up in this area where I get into like businesses that are struggling or have a really cool product. It's not got to market. And they're, they're still kind of small and niche. And then I my, my, my focus is on how do you take that build process around it? Figure out how to turn the dial and then blow it out. That's kind of the that's kind of the mindset and the, the the you know type of business that that I'm involved in wherever I go. So I was in a software company. I made a jump to, to products. I went from services to products, and that was really cool. And I spent a, a lot of time through two administrations, like uh, like self-financing a turnaround of a struggling software company, and that was that was a, that was an awesome experience because I learned so much. I was able to kind of apply things I learned in the past to learn a lot more as I grew in leadership positions in these companies and I started working more with private equity and venture capitalists along the way. So I got to learn how they think. And that's kind of, that kind of ends up, that's how I ended up at Kilcliffe. So, so, uh, with Kilcliffe, it was, it was one of these things where like Todd and I have been friends for a long time and, and, uh, I, I was actually, and this was Todd Ehrlich you
0: mentioned earlier, just for clarifying for the listeners, Todd Todd Ehrlich, who you mentioned earlier, he had an offer for you earlier on that you turned down, but now you circle back with him.
1: Yeah, so when we first started CoCliffe we kind of flirted with the idea of me joining, but I just moved to Atlanta with a software company that I was working with. Atlanta Atlanta's my hometown. I just moved back and and his sounded really cool. They were both startups. It was just one was a little bit further along than the other. And I was like, Well, these guys just moved me down. Also a navy guy. I'm loyal to this dude. Um, so I'm gonna do this thing, right? So so I, I kinda I I I took a pass on it. But circle back around you know, years later, I kinda I was finishing up my gig with the software company. And um, I was thinking about like my next steps. I actually was still engaged with software company, but I started thinking about my next steps. I'm like, all right, I got this thing. This thing's going the right way. I've done what I came in to do. I need a new adventure. Um, so that was in my the, my the back of my mindset. But the, the way this this whole thing started is to bring it back to the Navy and the SEAL teams, and it was really around uh, an event called the, uh, the organization called the Honor Foundation. The Honor Foundation is really cool. It's part. It's funded by the Navy SEAL Foundation. It's a transition assistance program. It's a four-month program. People apply to it, and it helps them sort of jumpstart their career, Getting when they get out of the Navy. And you can be at any stage in your career to go there. You can be about to retire. You can be four years in. It's just you, you, it's just like applying to college in a way. You you, you put an application, some certain group of people get admitted. They have a cohort. They have fellows. They have business leaders from all sects. They're talking to them. You know, on a nightly basis, they have school, um, they have deliverables. It basically helps take somebody from high-end special operations and take that 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 job or take that role and adopt it into a job for the future and and the civilian sector. So I was getting involved with that because for me along the way, like my story, the part I really didn't touch on, I probably should touch on more, is there was always a former SEAL involved in helping me out, like to get my start when I was. When I was trying to find a job out of grad school, like Todd actually came in and said, "Hey, I'm doing this private equity thing. If you don't get involved," at the time, like I said, I was getting married. I didn't want to take that risk on. Um, and but it was these guys. It was this Jim and a guy named Tom who worked at Control Risks, who came across me, and said you'd be a perfect fit to help us with this new business that we're starting that has all sorts of problems. And so they were they were former team guys. Um, and then a little bit further down the road when i was because i worked full-time when i was in the university of chicago doing that and then i went full-time into that job for a while like there was a guy i met while i was there named nick nick etton phenomenal guy he became a mentor for me and he he spent eight years as an officer at SEAL team eight in the 90s um and went out and had massive success and he and i met when i was at school in chicago and he took he he was really helpful he introduced me to people he was a sounding board for me when I'm, you know, doing like compensation negotiation, all that stuff. So this guy like helped me and introduced me to people. In fact, before we had what we have today, which are all these groups and social media and stuff, there was this there's this old email list, and there was a, it was run by a, like a community manager type guy, and everybody who was on the email list was a, 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 a officer from the SEAL team. Some of them resigned their commission. They were in the private sector. I was like one of like two or three enlisted people on it. He put me on it, and it helped me network and get started. Right. Um, so every step along the way, I, you know, I was somehow involved with the seals and the team guys were helping me out and I wanted to get back because it was a really hard transition for me. I went from being king of the world in a seal team. to like couldn't get a job and it was terrible and broke and it was, you know, I had to start from scratch. So for me, I had the opportunities that the Honor Foundation grew. I finally reached out to him. I'm like, Hey, what you guys are doing is huge. Because for me, three days before I got out, I'm out in the field operating, doing seal stuff. Two days before I get out, I'm at a, a course called TAPS that the Navy has. It's like a two-day out-processing course. And then I do that for two days, and I'm out. So I went from, like, operating – and I remember the week before I got out, I was doing all these these crazy uh, drager tests for our rebreather underwater, you know, like like really, really high-end stuff. And uh, and when I got out, like, I really went from that and, like, hit a wall, and boom, two days, you're out. And then I had no job, no money. I'm like, oh, what do I do now? So I when I, when I saw the Honor Foundation – growing and getting investment and the Navy SEAL Foundation partnering with it. I said, that's something I got to get behind because people help me along the way. And I have the opportunity to get back. So what I ended up doing was I reached out to him and I started mentoring guys. And it was really cool because team guy, team guy, we know friends. I have friends that stayed in their entire career. We have common peers and I'm able to talk to them and say, all right, this is everything I've learned. In the last like, you know, 15 years while you've been out like smoking people and having a great time doing the SEAL stuff and, you know, like, you know, doing the mission. And i've been i've been i've been doing this stuff in the civilian sector and i've learned a ton so i'm gonna help you fast track yourself so i'm gonna i, I, I sometimes like i even give them like templates i'm like all right here's a compensation plan template here's a you know or here's a here's a here's a, a user guide on how to use a crM system you know all this stuff i've learned along the way like um here's how you should structure your organization and i and i've been advising companies for a little bit too so i have that, that knowledge so I, I bring it to them and and they're very gracious and appreciative, and it's like I feel like I'm giving back. So I called up Todd because I, I, I was trying to get an event together for the Honor Foundation in Atlanta. It was, there's a, it's a great entrepreneurial community. There's great businesses here. Let's do an event here for that cohort some guys to network, and they can see what's here. So I was driving that, and I called Todd. I'm like, Todd, hey, look, man, um, let's use Kilquit. You guys are a SEAL brand. You guys have done amazing things. Why don't we use it as an anchor for a trip? And he's like, that's a great idea, but – let me introduce you to the CEO. <laughs> I knew Todd, like Todd and I are friends, but I, I just didn't know he was at Ruga at the time. He was on the board. He grew, he, he was, in, he was the CEO through the, the first period of, of rapid growth through 2015. But then he, he went to the board. And he had some other companies that he's all, alongside of Kilcliffe. And so I talked, I met with Joe, the CEO, Joe Driscoll. And we just started talking about business problems. Like we just had breakfast one day and started talking about business problems. The timing was really well for me. So they hired me as a consultant. They're like, hey, we want you to take a, a high-tech perspective on a beverage industry company and tell us, you know, what you could improve, where are where some of the gaps, you know. Give us an idea of how this company should operate moving to the future. And Kilcliffe has been a pioneering company. is pioneering in the the, the the recovery drink space where there really wasn't a, a niche for recovery drinks before Kilcliffe, like ready-to-drink recovery drinks. You just didn't get that. Like, that just wasn't there. And Todd and the guys, uh, G-Dub, they, they started this thing. That's what they did. And they made it really, really successful. Um, but there was this also this element of, like, when I looked at Kill Cliff, you know, it, it resembled a lot of the other beverage industry companies out there, which they're very old school. I mean, that's a very old school market. And I've been working with, you know, high-tech venture capitalists and high-tech business leaders they're on the forefront of everything, business process and um, organizational structure and, you know, um, inbound leads, all this stuff, right, that that, uh, that software starts do. So I took that perspective to it and I kind of diced it up with like, these are the things that I recommend you invest in. Um, and I, I delivered that report of doing this alongside with trying to get an honor foundation event in Atlanta. And actually, you know, they called me up and say, Hey, would you consider coming on and like running this component of the company for us? And I said, yeah, why not? You know, I've done my job at the other place. I'm still engaged there, but I'm ready for a new challenge. And Kilpens is a uh, amazing, Business, you know, when you look at these businesses, you, for me, they either have a like a, a market problem or an execution problem. And Killcliffe really had an execution problem. Like the, the product's great, people love the product. There's there's thousands of retailers around the nation selling it. It was an execution problem. It was real easy to identify where the issues were and start investing in the right, you know, um, solutions. So, that's how I got involved, but what was really great about getting back involved with, you know, with a SEAL brand—I'd never been really in a SEAL brand before—is um, now, not only has my relationship uh, become even closer with organizations like the Honor Foundation, um, but also the uh, Navy SEAL Foundation. And now, I, everything I do I'm, you know to drive sales in the company results in more donations and income to the Navy SEAL Foundation. So, um, you know, I said earlier on that it's really tough for families in the field teams. When I was in, there's like a 90% divorce rate. People are gone all the time. It's Clinton area, Clinton era. So it was, you know, financially challenging. There weren't as many, I don't think the you know, money was quite as good and the benefits weren't as good. And, um, and some of that's still true. Families are still struggling. You know, people still probably don't earn what they deserve um, for the type of job they're doing. And to be part of the foundation now that provides, uh, a backbone of support to these families and to the, the children and to the operators themselves. It, it's, it's huge. It's awesome. It's almost like coming full circle. So for me, it kind of, I happened to find as a, as a, as a new career path to try to, you know, build up this company to the next level um, and implement all sorts of outside thinking into a, into a beverage industry company. And, um, and the, 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 alt- the byproduct of everything I'm doing is that I get a, I get to give back even more and I get to like, you know, for all the people that helped me along the way, it's awesome being able to, to become more in, like, I, I just hired a guy out on our foundation. I was able to do that. Um, and, you know, we're, we're supporting events all over the country and we just gave a bunch of money, um, you know, to the foundation. And we just, we're going out to the gala in a couple of weeks in Denver and we just bought a, you know, huge table out there and we have all of our investors coming in. And it's, it's just, it's fantastic. So to be able to, to, to drive resources that we can, we can donate to that community that they can then deploy to, to help out, you know, the families that were facing some of the challenges that I've received back then. But, you know, at, I think maybe at an exponential higher level now.
0: John, just, for yeah, those that's really something cool. Sorry for those who, um, or, who aren't familiar with Killcliff, you know, you talked about the recovery drink, just kind of give everybody the concept of what it is.
1: Yeah, that, I, absolutely. I'd love to. So, so, uh, you lift and you can go to the website, which we just redesigned. looks really cool. Um, the, uh, it's, the the Recover drink is it's really it's kind of the idea initially, and in, is to have something that was uh, alternative to what's out there, a status quo, whether it's a sugary beverage or like a, a soda. Um, to add functional purpose, right? So, when you look at the drink, and we call it Recover now. For years, it was called Uchoplus because it's the only drink we have. Now we call it Recover because we have a whole line of drinks. Um, you're looking at a drink that's it's low, it's low caffeine, it's got B vitamins in it. it has it has ingredients in it that are are excellent for um, recovery and and reducing inflammation in the body. And one of the really cool things about the drink is all the ingredients are all natural and they're all FDA regulated. So unlike other functional beverages you might see out there, this is not a dietary supplement. This is a drink that you can you can give to the kids. There's no there's no like crazy stuff in it like creatine or BCAAs or stuff like that. This is just um, all natural ingredients. They're all all uh, indicate they're good for reducing inflammation in the body and they help you recover. So that's what we started the business as, and we got immediate traction within several like really high intensity communities that are looking for. Uh, that type of quick recovery um, and that type of like to get a pep in your step after a, a, a tough workout and something that tastes really good like a treat. And CrossFit was one of them. Mixed martial arts would be another, but CrossFit even more so. Um, so Killcliffe kind of took off with the CrossFit you know wave uh, because that's exactly what people wanted. They wanted a drink that was all natural, that fit their diet plans, that uh, gave functional benefit. Uh, so that's where the company started and the company tried a bunch of different things over time. they thought about diversifying its portfolio, but it was really over the last uh, year or so, we, we really took a hard look at, you know what, we're going to be, we're going to be a sports drink company and we're going to have a full line of sports drinks for every phase and an athlete's journey. Right. And we still have more to innovate, but we've, we've done a really, a couple of really cool things. So the recovery product is a niche that we really, I mean, we, we really, we were that niche. We are that niche. and, and it, but it is a niche market compared to some of the other markets for beverages. So what we did in the last – really, we did this in the last nine months. And it's phenomenal that we were able as a small company to, uh, to, to build, test, and deliver uh, new products so quickly. And we rebranded along the way. Um, we, we launched a product called Endure, which is a sports drink. Think about a healthy version of Gatorade because that's what it is. Um, it's a great product. It doesn't have any caffeine in It doesn't have any carbonation. It has a very light flavor. Um, so it's, it's immensely chuggable. It's great when you're, uh, before a workout or during a workout, it has a lot of potassium in it. There's, you know, most Americans don't get what they need potassium wise, and that's one of the most important, um, you know, elements in, in regulating your, your, your blood flow in your body. It's a really important thing. And also, obviously that helps you with cramping, um, as a result. Um, and we all know what that is. So. So it's got a lot of passing in it. And um it's a great sports drink. And we're getting really great adoption right now from like the, the really gritty ultra endurance uh, industry. Like, you know, runners they're doing like seventy milers and and bikers they're doing five hundred milers. Um, so that's really, really cool. And so they, and we launched a we just launched an energy drink called Ignite. And Ignite is also a really different take on energy drinks, and it doesn't take much Google searching to find article after article talking about how energy drinks are terrible for you, right? I mean, you start to look at it. If you look at it, a lot of energy drinks are either loaded with crap or they're dietary supplements, and when they're dietary supplements, they're putting things in to enhance their metabolism. Uh, they're putting things in to maybe get you jacked, like creatine or BCAs with amino acids. They're putting all this stuff in there. It's not regulated, and it's not always necessarily a good thing for you. It could, it could oftentimes be a, a caustic cocktail, right? So we took a different approach to it. We took the same approach as with the recovered drink and said, you know what? Like we're gonna we're gonna have something that's, that's healthy that has that has no, none of the other stuff I just mentioned in it, but has things that are really important for you if you're drinking it as a pre-workout or if you just want sustained energy throughout the day. And so we put so we put potassium back in it. We put 500 milligrams of potassium in it. There's no other energy drink with 500 milligrams of potassium or really any meaningful potassium at all. Um, we also put uh. Uh, electrolytes in it there's no energy drinks with electrolytes in it which so if you're thinking about energy drink drinking a pre-workout like if you go get the stuff that's on the market right now and you think you're doing something good for you you're really not you're not getting the fundamental ingredients to help you sustain energy and work out uh and we put some other stuff in it that's really interesting but the, it has 150 milligrams of caffeine so that's that's a nice cake that's like having like what like two starbucks coffees or something to give you a frame of reference um but the the the, the, the Caffeine is from green tea. That's really important because it, it's one of the fastest uh, absorbing forms of caffeine in your body, and it's all natural. So, again, we create an energy drink that's FDA-approved, all FDA-regulated ingredients, uh, no sugar, so none of that Red Bull trash, um, and uh, and we put ingredients in it that really are good for your body um, and give you sustained energy. So, um, so, by doing this, one of the things we did as a, as a business is we we introduce drinks in two of the largest drink categories that exist, sports drinks like Gatorade. And you see it with, like, vitamin water and body armor and all this stuff that's out there. It's, it's, a, it's a massive market. And what's interesting about that market is it's trending down. The status quo is trending down. People are turning their back to sugary products and products with artificial sweeteners. And I, I challenge you, if you're listening to this and you think about it, you go to the shelf and look at the drink that you drink from a supermarket, um, it's like a body armor or something like that. You're going to look at the back of it, and you're going to see superglue. You're going to see a bunch of artificial stuff in it. If you go look at our endure product, you're not going to see any of that, right? So, if we just get some crumbs and scraps off the table in that market, it's massive. It's game changing for our company, and as it's game changing for our company, it's also game changing for the SEAL community because we give a percentage of what we do back to the foundation. Um, and the same thing goes; it holds true with the energy drink. And I already described in detail how it's different, but uh, but that's a massive category as well. It's really growing, and so. So that's an that's an area where, um, if again, if we can just get scraps off the table, our goals are obviously much more ambitious than that. But realistically, I mean, we're a small company making our way in the world. So if we just get scraps off the table in these two massive categories, then it, that's immensely more valuable, and that's a, a much faster growth curve than what we anything we could do with recover. Recover is great. Recover is always going to be there. Now we have a full product set of, of pre intra and post-workout if you want to look at it in that way all phases of the athlete's journey and we have drinks that fill different types of of audiences the recover is really appealing to high intensity workout people The Endure is really uh you know appealing to team sports and um you know like uh cardiovascular like you know endurance sports um and the ignite is like it's it's such a huge audience right everything from from like skateboarders to gamers to every time i go into a a 7-Eleven or a quick trip, you know, there's a line of contractors. They're always buying Monster and Red Bull. So you can even think like, you know, contractors, ice road truckers, who names it, but it's also, it's also good for, you know, people looking for a good pre-workout. So they they all have these audiences um, independently, which could be larger than the audience for the full set. And that's an exciting thing for us. And we're going to continue to innovate, but for a company that in the last six to nine months we've rebranded, We've introduced new products. We've we focus group those products with over 2,000 people uh, to tweak in our flavors and our taste and our our design and all of our messaging. That's a huge feat at Um and uh, we're really excited about what the future holds. And you know, it's one of those things that as we as we grow and, and build our business, we're able to. I, I want to hire more people from the Honor Foundation. I want to hire more people from the teams. We have team guys that have been part of this com- this company. They're in the 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 fabric of this company. Todd Early, uh, Andy Stump. Uh, Chris Irwin. Those guys were all instrumental. I mean, Todd started it. Chris was the president of the company for about four or five years, leading it through the period of rapid growth where we were top ten fastest growing business in Atlanta. Um, he's now an advisor to the company. and Actually, works for the Seal Foundation um, as as one of their their directors. And then uh, um, and then Andy, who was who was an employee for a while, but then became an athlete. So he's you see him. He's on he's on commercials. He's on some of our commercials. He's got a podcast. He's a phenomenal guy. And, and I mean, these guys like Chris and. And Andy, I mean, these guys don't don't kill me for saying this, but these guys are war heroes. They did all the stuff I didn't do, um, and they did it with some of my my best friends in the world. And uh, you know, being a part of Kill Cliff now, you know, you're kind of standing on the shoulders of giants, and you're trying to do a good deal for for them and for the community as you move forward. And so, that's really an exciting exciting place to be, and an exciting you know opportunity ahead of us.
0: All right, real quick, John, tell everybody where they can get Kill Cliff. Uh, you know, as far as stores is concerned, or the website, or whatever else.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd love it if everyone just goes and checks out my website because you know I had a hand in redesigning it, and I think it looks pretty cool. Um, and uh, I also would love it if people listen to uh, the podcast that you and I are working on together. That uh, that we'll, we'll start announcing and it plays live on Saturdays right now. That would be great. But we're gonna, we're also going to launch it on the web uh, mid August. Um, so if if you want to go out and get some Kilcliff though. Uh, there's, the distribution is – a lot of our distribution today is in gyms, right? It's in CrossFit Studios. It's in, like, Gold's Gyms, places like that, 24-Hour Fitness. Um, we have some distribution in Whole Foods. We have Whole Foods in the southeast, mostly in the Atlanta area, Whole Foods in Denver, so that kind of narrows down. Um, there's not much opportunity. We're in grocery, some grocery stores across the U.S. Like, we're going in some big ones, H-E-B, Hy-Vee, uh, uh, Giant Eagle, uh, Wegmans. If we're not in there today, we're going in. We have those deals already set up. We're in Kroger. Uh, so there's some grocery distribution uh g and c is probably our most reliable place to find it across the u.s the only problem is you only find like a subset of the brand you'll find the the recover products and and soon they'll be rolling out the endure product and they're selling the ignite product online so um so th- your best bet is uh is you know if you can't find those places come to our website we, we're just launching a, a loyalty program so we're giving giving our customers points for the stuff that they buy and allow them to use that for swag um you know give back to our customers um, and, uh, and, and, also on Amazon. So, uh, so we have everything available online. Um, and that, that might be, we have two day free shipping. So that might be the easiest place to start. Um, if you can't find it in your local retail distribution, but, uh, if you go to your store and you don't have it, ask your store manager for it, because we're working really, really hard to get out there in all the grocery stores uh, right. that we can uh, today.
0: Well, listen, I, I can vouch for it. It's an incredible product. I use it. I'm a fan of it. Uh, Since you and I have crossed paths, you know, you guys have sold me on Killcliff right away, and uh, I bought in. I could tell a lot of other people that, you know, once you try the products, you're not going to go in any other direction. So it certainly is worth it. Killcliff.com is the website. John, look, it's an incredible story, man. I mean, you know, just uh, to to take what you learned in the SEALs and apply it into, you know, an entrepreneurial sense and into the business world and and to be able to have the success that you had has been nothing short of fantastic. So certainly, congratulations on all that. And we, we appreciate you being part of the Hazard Ground.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And, um, you know, I, everything you're doing here, Mark is fantastic and I, I love listening to
0: it. All right, John Timor. Thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Thank you. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.